Hello listeners, welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture, from appropriate technology to fair trade to globalization and organics. Today we bring you uh, part two in a series that we have been running this summer. Um, This is a series of shows that we have been collaborating with Sandia National Labs and Phil Pohl and also Kathy Isaacson to talk about food and we were lucky to record this session with Jack Meisner of Sandia National Labs. The idea here was to take two different meals and compare the carbon footprint of those two different meals. And so those of you who are interested in carbon and ecological footprints, this is right up your alley. So enjoy the podcast and thanks for listening. Well, I just wanted to talk really um fairly briefly about something called ecological footprinting or carbon footprinting. Um, Global warming, global climate change, um, the reduction of carbon dioxide or a carbon footprint seems to be a pretty hot topic now. I mean, BP has commercials on about what is your carbon footprint. Well, probably most of us don't know what a carbon footprint is, and there's another term called an ecological footprint. And they're slightly different, and I wanted to just kind of introduce that concept. I've got a couple handouts here that I'll talk through, and um, hopefully what it'll do, it will um, um, engage us in in some discussion. One particular aspect of food is the environmental impact that food production, food processing, food distribution, food consumption has, as well as all of the other aspects that many people uh, talked about during the introduction. So an ecological footprint, Um, this little handout here, the card, is something that I prepared um, with a student who works um, with me for kind of um, an awareness event at Sandia. So it's pretty high level, but an ecological footprint, let me read the definition, is simply a measure of how much biologically productive land is needed to support a population or activity in terms of all the resources it consumes and all the waste it produces. Um, ecological footprinting is a term that a term and a methodology that was coined by William Rees and Matisse Wackernagel. Um, William Rees at the University of British Columbia and Matisse was a student in 1996. Their primary reason for coming up with an ecological footprint was to promote awareness of humans' activities, uh, awareness of the human activity on the environment. And when you talk about an ecological footprint, what you do is you measure it in land surface. So you can, if you've ever gone on a calculator, you can answer, a, you know, you can do something very simple or very, something very complex. You can answer a few little questions and it will say, well, if everyone lived like you, it would take three Earths to sustain the human population. So that sort of message is very powerful. And there's a, a methodology behind doing that. So. Very simply, and food is a good thing to look at in terms of an ecological footprint. If you eat an orange that was grown in California, that orange um, relied on a certain um, amount of land to produce it. It was in an orchard. There's a certain amount of land that it takes. So it's it's just a real physical thing. The other part of the footprint is um, the carbon dioxide or the energy used. And energy... Um, can be related to carbon dioxide, right, which is the major greenhouse gas. And carbon dioxide can be related to land because 
plants. Um, if you look at the amount of land needed to mitigate the impact of our energy use, plants sequester carbon dioxide. They use carbon dioxide to grow. So you can also relate energy use using that same calculation methodology back to a parcel of land. So that's very simply kind of what it is in layman's terms. We can get into um, details during, during Q&A or I can talk to you individually about it. I'm an engineer so I can bore you with equations, but I didn't want to do that tonight because that's really not the important part of the discussion. Um, looking at this um, little card, there's a chart here which you probably can't read. It's very tiny, but the um, bottom kind of brown um, piece of that graph is cropland, and then just above that is grazing land. So this is humanity's ecological footprint. And you can see that the amount of land needed to produce meat and, and um, the vegetables we eat is pretty significant. The big blue part is the energy footprint. And food contributes a lot to the energy footprint. Um, in some way, footprinting is done more easily at a global or a large scale because you can kind of average things and they don't make much of a difference. Um, I'll talk about the impact of the meals tonight and talk to you about some of the difficulties in calculating that. But if you look at the ecological, the global footprint, um, people have uh, calculated it. And the sad news is that we are basically at about, um, exceed our capacity by about 25%. So what that means is we are using resources 25% faster than the natural environment can replenish. So we're in what's called an ecological deficit. Um, a couple of other kind of interesting things about footprinting, and on the back here, there's two, uh, two graphs up at the top. The, um, the one on here, the human planet index, shows the, again, graphically, the ecological footprint, which is increasing and shows that we're in that 25% deficit. The other one, um, and this won't be a surprise to those of you in the room, but by comparison, there's this living planet index, which is a, um, an index of vertebrate species diversity. And of course, that shows a downward trend. So as we are, humanity is increasing its uh, impact on the globe, we're also losing uh, species diversity. The um, bottom chart here, just to show you how um, the United States stacks up against other countries, well, we are the leader. We have the largest footprint in the world. Actually, we're second. I think the United Arab, Arab Emirates is a little bit higher than us. Um, but what it shows is that, on average, um, Americans have the largest eco footprint in the world at 9.6 global hectares per person, compared to India, for instance, which has 0.8 global hectares um, per person. The um, world average, the per capita ecological footprint is about 2.2 global hectares per person. And you get that by looking at all of the bioproductive land in the world, the arable land, the grazing land, the forest, the oceans which can, which can be converted to land. And each of us, our space for the world is 2.2 hectares. And a hectare is about two and a half acres. So about five acres. Um, in the United States, our, our footprint is nearly 10. Um, it's not all bad news because we have more land than the rest of the world, so um, our biocapacity is about five. But what that says is if everyone lived like we did in the United States, we'd need two Earths to sustain, sustain us. Now, given the fact that China is growing in wealth and in population and wants to 
um, achieve the standard of living a lot of third world countries want us to achieve the standard of living of industrialized countries you can pretty readily see what the problem is um, one other thing that I want to talk about and is this chart and I put this together this is kind of Jack's first stab at identifying components in our food system from production to processing distribution storage preparation and consumption and finally getting rid of our food waste and what I've done is I've listed several functions in here from production the type of chemicals that are used the amount of water the energy we use for equipment human energy animal energy um, how productive your plants are how productive the animals you raise are um, down through processing and I'm not going to go through all of this but what I thought is if you're willing that this would be a good exercise while you're eating. What I've done is I filled in the section on the carbon footprint in terms of, and what it means is the dark dot is a direct relation to an ecological footprint. The open um, dot means that there is some either energy or land component, but it's not directly in line of calculating it. For instance, chemicals for fertilizer, a lot of chemicals that we use are petrochemicals for fertilizer. So there is there is an energy cost to that that could be translated into a land cost, but you can also use organic fertilizers which would have a lower, a lower footprint. So what I'm um, suggesting, if, you're, if you are all are up to it, is I've got the kind of scientific, the carbon footprint column here, but I've also identified economic aspects, social, cultural, human health, ecological health, and ecological health can mean something other than footprinting because we can use chemicals that then pollute the water and are toxic to plants and animals in a different kind of way and taste and aesthetic so hopefully this will generate some discussion at your table if you'd like to put dots or checks in here and give it back to me that would be great I also included a card so and that's not to publicize me it's to give you an opportunity if you've got some feedback to get back to me I'm very interested in this and I'm trying to kind of gather that scientific data to make some some good sense of it and then I've also just included some different what I call food facts on the back and I'll probably talk about that a little bit after dinner when I give you my little calculations for the meals that uh, that were prepared so um, I'll turn it back over to you Kathy thanks okay. we're going to eat now and then we have given Jack the, all the ingredients of the food that's been prepared and where it came from as much as possible, which was great at the co-op because now you're labeling your produce, a lot of it from where it comes from, it's just awesome. So we gave him the information about where the food, in some cases where it came from, many cases we didn't know. Uh, so after dinner he's going to give us the, the tally and see what type of footprint impact this meal has, something like that. Um, Okay, so before we eat, I've asked uh, a couple of the cooks to just tell us a little bit about the food that we have tonight and where it came from. And uh, so then when Jack tells us how it, it falls out in the, in the footprint, uh, we'll know what we're doing here. And, and I'm really curious to see what the results are of this. I have no idea because even in putting together the meals, it's, well, we'll hear about some of the dilemmas. So, Janet? Do you want to so when uh, Kathy and I were given this charge to sort of come up with a meal that would have a low footprint, having really no idea 
what the uh, particulars of that were, we assumed that something that was prepared mostly from local ingredients would have the lowest footprint, but I'll be uh, interested to hear what Jack has to say about that. So in the short time that I have to speak, I guess I wanted to give a plug to some of the people who supplied the food for uh, the meal that we prepared. Ironically, I'm going to call the meal that we prepared from mostly locally New Mexico ingredients a Mediterranean pasta salad. <laughs> Uh, its main ingredients are pasta, tomatoes, feta cheese, greens, and then uh, seasonings like garlic and oregano and olive oil and that sort of a thing. All of our ingredients were purchased locally. The farthest away that anything came was from the Napa Valley in California, which is where our olive oil came from that's part of the dressing. Otherwise, all of the produce is, uh, was locally grown here in Albuquerque, and the pasta was created uh, here locally as well from ingredients primarily from Colorado. So let me just give a little brief plug for those folks. The pasta is from a company called Pasta Divina, which has only been in operation for a few months here in Albuquerque, and I've left uh, some of their cards here for you to select. They sell at the farmer's market. I think they're trying to get to the place where they can sell at the co-op, but they're working on some packaging issues. But Michelle from the company says that if you email her or call her, she'll be happy to prepare anything you want uh, on order, which is what she did for us tonight. They make all different kinds of pasta, whole wheat, spinach, basil, semolina, that sort of a thing. The, uh, the produce, our Amyo Farms supplied the tomatoes and the onions. They're located here in Bosque Farms. They sell at the farmer's market. Chispas Farms is here in Albuquerque. They're also at the farmer's market. And Liberty Farms provided the greens for us, and they're out of Tejeras. So again, going to the farmer's market, seeing what's available, purchasing from those folks there, and then finding out, are they local, and, and uh, where do they get their ingredients and that sort of a thing seems key. We also were able to find a local supplier, surprisingly, for feta cheese. And that's from the Old Windmill Dairy, which is between Estancia and Moriarty. It also uh, sells out of the farmer's market. So I think, you know, on one hand, we were surprised that we could find so many ingredients for a dish locally. I won't call it a dilemma, but one of the things that we dealt with was, you know, if you're like me, or maybe you're not like me, but what I do is I look at a recipe and I think, well, that recipe looks interesting. Um, buy the ingredients, make it. That wasn't necessarily the case uh, in this situation. I pretty much had to look at, we pretty much had to look at, well, what was available? You know, what, what did we have that people were supplying and then work from there? Which for me was just a different way to think about food and food production and even eating. So, um, so as I mentioned, our, our things that were farthest away were from the Napa Valley, which was olive oil. We suddenly realized Italy could be a problem. Um, so anyway, we'll be interested to see how that comes out. And we hope you enjoy the Mediterranean pasta salad from New Mexico. <laughs> and then Brenda and Teresa. We were not aware that this was a challenge to make a local dish. Um, we made pizzas. Um, We've made pizzas for dinner since I can remember my mom's made pizza and it's so good. But um, the dough is from Dion's, which is local, but we don't know where they get their ingredients, so that could be from farther away. Um, the sauce is from New Jersey. The cheese is from Illinois. We don't know where the olives are from. 
Um, there's pepperoni sausage and Canadian bacon from Minnesota. The mushrooms are just from Smith's and we don't know where they get those. The tomatoes were homegrown, however, from a neighbor, so that's a plus. Um, we got green chili from Hatch and another um, onion and we don't know where that's from either. And, aw. <laughs> Okay, so it, it really wasn't a competition. We're just, you know, we don't know how it's going to turn out, so. With that, the group took a break to eat the food that was prepared, and by the way, the food was delicious. And then we reconvened, and Jack took the time to talk us through the carbon footprint of the different meals. The advantage of getting to speak and then waiting and then coming up and speaking again is you remember what you forgot to say the first time. <laughs> So two things that I um, wanted to mention in terms of looking at, well, first of all, I, I, I made a big point about the difference between a carbon and an ecological footprint. So very simply, a carbon footprint is when you're only dealing with carbon dioxide equivalents. So it's really energy and carbon. And the ecological footprint includes the carbon and the energy, but also the land use, so the amount of acreage or productive acreage to grow grain or to graze cattle. Okay, and the second thing in, in terms of looking at the global footprint, I, it, it would, I would be remiss if I didn't remind everybody that various estimates from the UN and, and various NGOs are that not only do we need to um, farm more sustainably and consciously, but we need to, estimates vary between 12 and 25 percent of the land mass we need to set aside and basically do nothing with because that land provides unquantifiable ecological services. So that, that, that footprint, we can't just look at all the land out there and say, boy, we could just go crops on it and feed everybody. We really need to be um, conscious, conscious, use our conscience correctly, we need to set, set aside that land. Or, our scientists tell us we're going to be in trouble because we're not, we don't have the species diversity, we don't have the pollinators, we don't have the, the, the plants to sequester the carbon, um, we don't have the, the land to clean the water and to clean the air for us. Um, <clears throat> so before I re reveal the results, and I have to tell you, Teresa, this is not a complete analysis, so you can, protests are, are accepted. Um, but a couple of, some bits of information on the back here. Um, called food facts and the first little chart just talks about the various components or percentage of and this is by energy of production processing transportation restaurants and home preparation this is an average for all food produced now obviously different crops will have different composition here some may have a higher percentage of energy for, for production and some lower and the other thing that I wanted to because what I did in this analysis, I didn't do a real true ecological footprint. We didn't have quite enough information or quite enough time. But this gives you an idea of the um, environmental impact or ecological footprint of various um, types of food, from grains, vegetables, fruit, dairy products. Um, and it, it has the total, this is the total US foot food footprint just based upon the land area used to grow our food is about 1.4 acres per person. It doesn't include that energy component of the footprint in this analysis. And just as kind of an example of how all this works, 
I've got the question down here, why is beef so large? If you look at the footprint of various grains and even other animal products, uh, beef is way, way higher. And there are a lot of reasons, <coughs> and I've got some down here. Um, it takes a lot of acreage to support a cow, about 10 acres. Um, and typically in this country what we do is we, we uh, graze them on grassland for a while and then we bring them to a feedlot and feed them corn for anywhere from 120 to 150 days. And they eat 2,600, that's pounds, not ponds, of grain while they're doing that, which is equivalent to a four-tenths of an acre of arable land. Um, a cow weighs 1,200 pounds, about 600 pounds of that is meat. So each pound of meat is about one six-hundredth of the cow's footprint or about 0.017 acres, and the average citizen consumes about 63 pounds of beef. So that means that the average person's footprint is over an acre if for, for beef production. Um, so those are just some facts and figures, and you can think about it with the meals that, that you were served today. By the way, it, everything was delicious, and thanks to the cooks, and can we give them a round of applause? So Kathy and, and Phil asked me to do an, a footprint of the meals, and as you might gather, you can get very, very detailed and quantitative about footprinting, or you can be very general. Um, because we didn't have a lot of time to put together this information, because I'm a, still a bit of a beginner in this analysis, I didn't do a true footprint, but what I did is analysis that's basically food miles. So I took all the ingredients and looked at where they came, and I got on the web and said, um, you know, how do I find distances between cities? And sure enough, a website came up, and I just went from Albuquerque to wherever the, the food was produced. I made some assumptions, and I've got some results, which I still think is pretty interesting. The energy component of the food print, food print is 11%, which is still, uh, the transportation component, rather, which is still significant. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. But what I did is I took all of the ingredients and their location, and Teresa told you where they came from, and then I've got the distance in miles. So the ragu sauce from New Jersey is 1,814 miles away. Um, I made some assumptions about things like the mushrooms. I didn't know where they came from, so I said 250 miles. Um, I didn't know where the onions came from, but I assumed they were local, so I, I said 10 miles. Anything that was local, I said 10 miles, and I did that for the other as well. So the, the result is, the, if you sum up the distances of everything traveled, it's 7,601 miles for the delicious pizza that we ate. There's another methodology, which is a weighted average sum of the distance, and you basically just take the weight times the distance and you sum it and then you divide again by the, um, the amount. And if you do that, the average distance that all of the food travel is 900 miles. These are kind of surpri they're, they're surprising numbers to me when I think about it. Okay, so Kathy and, oops, I didn't even put that, and Janet's meal. Um, I did the same thing for, and they had much more local food, and this is really biased towards local food, so we didn't get into the processing or a lot of the things that we talked about that are parts of the, the footprint. This really just looks at the distance. Um, 
and you can see down to right about here, we're doing really good. Um, the pasta, Janet told me was, and I, I made the correction on my, uh, my computer, but I didn't correct it. It actually came from Colorado, so that should be 200 miles. So the numbers are a little higher. The total distance is 3,627 miles, and the average distance is 274. So the impact of transportation, I mean, all this did was kind of prove the obvious that local food has a much smaller impact in terms of transportation. And I hope as, as I get more sophisticated and the, 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 the science gets more sophisticated, it's pretty, it's pretty new right now. We can start to get um, better data and it's really kind of information for a consumer out there. Europe is, is starting to do some eco-labeling. So there's some stores in Europe, I think Germany in particular, where you can look at the embodied energy of a lot of products. And I know La Montanita is starting to say where the food is from. So given consumers more choice about um, what they buy and, and the um, environmental choices they make. So that's my, that's my little analysis. Um, it's a piece of information that you know, is, is, is we should consider as part of our food choices. That concluded the formal speech part of Jack's talk. Then members of the audience came with their questions for Jack Meisner. Significant here is maybe not the direct comparison, but maybe what's possible, right? What's possible to do uh, locally or whatever. I know when we were at the farmer's market, the coordinator of the farmer's market, and his name escapes me right now, you all probably know, yeah. Um, he was putting up a sign that said 90% of the garlic that's sold in supermarkets is from China. So it's kind of like, okay, yeah, you can get garlic from China or you can get garlic from Albuquerque. So it seems to me that what this is is maybe not just so much a direct comparison, but maybe what's possible with some consciousness or whatever. I just, I just wanted to ask you, Jack, about uh, what some of the implications were. A lot of the times we assume... Um, and this is the dominant paradigm in, in the international development industry, certainly, that everybody in the rest of the world needs to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps to where we are. Um, but it seems like the carbon footprint kind of contradicts that concept. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, I don't know if I can talk much about it, but, but you're right. If you look on that, that card that I, I gave you, the, the countries with the low carbon input, India has one of the lowest. I'm sure many South American countries would fall in that category because they don't um, have two or three cars. They don't have lots and lots of appliances. They're not able to um, buy shrimp from all over the world any time of the year. So I, I think it's, yeah, consumer choices make a huge difference, and I think that's part of the education. But I, I guess my question is, what, what does that mean from an economic development perspective? You know, as, as China tries to mimic us, you know, what is, what is the actual feasibility of Africa and South America and Southeast Asia following in China's footsteps? So my reaction is that, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a pessimist in, in that respect. And I think that, that you know, those, those countries want to be consumers like we do. And they're probably going to increase their, their ecological footprint and their ecological impact. I mean, I think the, the hope is that they will learn from our mistakes. And there certainly are better ways to do that, more sustainable ways to do that. And there are good examples of that. I mean, there are cities in 
in, in Argentina and South America that have really, you know, emphasized local food production, emphasized sustainability. There are po pockets of real, real success. So, but I mean, if, if you ask me, my, my, uh, my outlook is pretty, pretty grim, but my, my hope is great. So. So I had a question regarding, you know, productivity and processing costs, which are two of the highest with regard to food production. And, you know, with our um, fast, you know, fixation on quality and the FDA and all the Food and Drug Administration regulations, you know, how are we going to ever reduce productivity and processing? Because I don't think most of us, although home, I was, it was interesting that home, home processing was 25 on the scale. You know, how, you know, most of us are not, you know, are buying processed foods. And so how can those two areas, which obviously are significant in terms of things, and I think it actually comes with regard to, you know, production coming from other countries and with the China scare recently with all the dog food that was tainted and killed all the animals. I mean, how are we going to deal with that issue of productivity and processing costs? Let me ask the processing costs, and let me address the industrial kind of processing costs, because I think that, and there are people here that know a lot more about the farm bill than I do. Um, we were talking about the omnivore's dilemma, and one of the things in that book that they talk about is, you know, local farmers trying to get small, local meat processing plants. And all our government regulations now point us in exactly the, the opposite direction. So it's big, big processing plants where we transport animals to feedlots and then to processing plants and we use a huge amount of energy and um, we use a huge amount of land to do that. So I don't have an answer except I think our legislation is, is kind of counter to local sustainable food production. One of the um, analysis that we've done at Sandia is to look at some s sustainable technologies and do ecological footprints of those and we um, did a footprint of photovoltaic panels and luckily we weren't sure what the answer would be is they do make sense they have a low carbon footprint and if you look at the energy or carbon payback it's less than two years so the en energy that goes into producing that panel pays itself back in less than two years if you look at the dollar payback it's about 30 years so, I mean, to me, that's a clear example that we significantly undervalue energy because of all the subsidies and the fact that we keep the, the cost low. So that's, that was part of your question. The second one had to do with, with food home processing. And I don't know where those numbers came from. I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, because people cook their food or, or microwave it or um, buy it and keep it in the refrigerator for a period of time before they use it, that that's, they said it was about a quarter of the energy for the total processing. Yes, but I, I think it's when you bring the food into your home that all that energy you use before you, you finally consume it. A few people that I talked to as we were preparing to do this said, including my relatives who live in beef country, said, you know, I hope you're not suggesting that things like the meat processing plants that provide so many jobs for our community and keep our community vital, you know, you're not going to be standing up suggesting that those jobs go away, are you, Kathy? <laughs> so, you know, I think there's a lot of different vantage points we could enter this conversation. That concludes the carbon footprint part of the talk. There is a second half of this talk that involves gardening and a really great innovation 
in gardening that we're going to save for next week. It's about a 15-minute talk, and we will get a sense of what this innovation is, who the innovator is, and how it works in our next show. So please stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. Saludos. Saludos.